0: three two okay so uh very nice to meet you and very your book is fantastic i really really loved it and it's kind of hilarious how this conversation came about you said you got a a call from your publicist because your audiobook spiked it spiked like
1: crazy it was like what what cosmic dust in the outer bands of jupiter just did that because we didn't figure out what it was it just spiked like crazy went nuts Uh, I think it went to number one, uh, briefly, but anyway, so he thought, what did that anyway?
0: And it was from an Instagram post. It was. And, uh, you were, see, my friend, Steve Ranella wrote a book, um, called American Buffalo. And I had put on Instagram how great the book was. And he did the audio version of it. And a friend of mine on Instagram, he goes by the name of the Jackalope. He's a, a fellow Hunter S. Thompson enthusiast. He said, "You got to read this book," and so he, he he tells me to read your book, and uh, Empire of the Summer Moon. Yeah, that's how had. Yeah, yeah, um And uh, it was amazing. I mean, he was absolutely right, and it was so good. And I I made an Instagram post about that. There it is. Oh, we got a copy of it. Look at that, ladies and gentlemen. Um, <laughs> it's it's a fantastic book. There's so much good stuff in there, and I I just it was. It was so sad and so gripping and so riveting. And you, we all know that a lot of horrific things happened in the time where the settlers started making their way across the plains and right. headed west. But, God, you just did such a fantastic job of, uh, of sort of bringing it to life.
1: It's all those things. It's brutal. It's sad. It's incredibly dramatic. It's, it's, I mean, I just think people forget about w- what the frontier was uh it's kind of a nice idea that you get on in, on tv or something but it was it was a savage place um anyway i was i was trying to convey it with this with the minimum possible of people being stanked out on anthills with
0: their eyelids cut off and things like that so <laughs> there was a lot of that though there right there was a lot of that yeah i mean the, the the horrors of it all it's like whew. you know um and i'd never seen i had no i knew that that kind of stuff had taken place, but I'd really never read it so graphically depicted before, before this book. What, what motivated you to write about all this? So what, what, this is a book about me.
1: I'm a Connecticut Yankee, Massachusetts, Connecticut guy. I moved to Texas 25 years ago and, uh, and I've been there ever since. And I didn't know anything about Texas history. Um, nothing, uh, beyond whatever you might know about the Alamo or something or Sam Houston or somebody like that. And, uh, uh I got there and I just started to you know I started to hear about what one the great plains and what they were which was an alien concept to me. I wasn't sure what the plains were or why they were different than some other part of the country uh, the high plains. Um, and I came into this idea it came upon this idea that the last frontier was there that this is where it all went down this is where like the end of freedom and limitlessness it was it didn't happen the frontier didn't push forward until it got to california and then hit the ocean california settled the east settled and then there was this one last place that did not and it went on for and there were reasons for that one of which was the most hostile indian tribes in the country another was that it was there was no water wood, or you know uh Uh, there was basically only land no water or, or timber but so i got into this and then you know lo and behold there's this i find out because i live in texas that there's this principle that lives on this that lived on this land the comanches that determined everything that happened in the american west around them and that's not an exaggeration they they were because until you know the west wasn't won until they lost it and that was for sure and so there were two things one this arc of the rise and fall of the most powerful tribe, most influential tribe in American history, the Comanches, which was very cool from the Spanish and the horse and all sorts of big stuff that goes on. And then in the middle of that story was this little story of this little nine-year-old girl with, you know, blonde hair and cornflower blue eyes who gets taken in a Comanche raid in 1836, who ends up becoming the you know, mother of the last and greatest chief of the Comanches. And in fact, her kidnapping and his surrender at the very end of the Comanches, you know, sort of bookend a 40-year war. We never fought a 40-year against war uh, war against anybody except them. So I ran into this story and I'm, I'm just a kid from Connecticut. And it just seemed like the most obvious book in the world. It was just the coolest history.
0: It's a crazy story. And I'd, I'd never heard of Cynthia Ann Parker before. Now she's we have her on, on your wall. wall. <laughs> we have a giant <laughs> metal picture of her on the wall. because it, it was so powerful. Uh, your depiction of it too. I wanted to. Uh, I wanted to find out what she looks like. And what what is his name again? Quan. So Quana, Quana? Uh,
1: Quana. was his. The and name this is on the given, cover of the book. Right. He, be, he because his mother was Cynthia Ann Parker, which was not that didn't become that didn't come out, and no one found out that until he was much older. Uh, so he was born Quanah as a Comanche. Later in the reservation period when people found out who he was, he identified as part of the Parker family.
0: also Oh wow. yeah
1: so he, he, the, he as a famous Comanche war chief and he was one of the most famous and and feared, he was Quanah.
0: It's such a crazy story that they killed so many people, but occasionally they would keep people and bring them into the tribe.
1: Right. So th- there were rules of the frontier at the time, and we we're talking about how savage it was, and the rules of the, at least of the Plains Indians, of which the Comanches were one, that if you were captured as an adult male, you were killed, e- tortured to death, either quickly or slowly, depending on how much time they had. Um, if you were a baby, you were killed. Um, they couldn't deal with a baby. Baby was – they were nomads and they were on their horse and they were probably escaping from whatever raid they had just done. They couldn't deal with babies. Um, a teenage uh, girl or a young woman would possibly be killed but likely turned into a sort of a, a slave. Um, the ones who had a chance of being adopted into the tribe were the you know, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-olds because um, Comanches had trouble keeping their numbers up and so they instinctively kind of – they would take these captives and not just from uh, you know, white people, from the Apaches and the Utes and the Navajos and whoever they might take them from. Um, and so what was interesting about the frontier though is that those rules applied – so long forget forget about white people arriving in the early 18th century for the moment. Those rules had applied to Indian tribes since forever. You know, that was the assumption of a raid. They all had it – was, it was almost like the golden rule in reverse or, or the golden rule, do unto others. They all expected that kind of treatment. None of them were shocked when a baby was killed or a pregnant woman was killed. It took the kind of, the, you know, the Anglo-European civilization of, you know, Newton and Leibniz and the uh, biblical tradition to arrive on the Texas frontier in 1830 and be shocked – Mm. At what they saw, very interesting, very savage, very brutal. Uh, it was a it was a culture of raiding, essentially.
0: And th- this is the Comanche culture in particular, or the Comanche Americans in general.
1: It, well, Native Americans in general, Plains Indians in general, um, and uh, you know, so Plains Indians, we could kind of start. You know, you you would know the names of the lot of a lot of them: Arapaho and Cheyenne and Sioux. And these were people who operated out in the great wide open. They were all masters of the horse. What made the Comanche special was that they um, they became the preeminent horse tribe. Now, people forget that there weren't any horses in this in in, in the continent until the Spanish brought them in the sixteenth century, and so the the uh, the tribes that got the horse and mastered the horse basically altered the entire balance of power on the plains and the tribe that got the horse better than anybody else in terms of breaking and breeding and saddling and riding and stealing and hunting on the back of and fighting with were the comanches and nobody was their peer and so this was a this was not just a plains tribe it was the preeminent power
0: on the southern plains. Did you know that horses originally evolved here in North America? No. And then they went extinct, then they went extinct. here, I but then they reintroduced them. Really? The Europeans did, yeah. There's a, a, a guy named Dan Flores. He's got a bunch of great books, and one of them is uh, called Coyote America. He's got another one. What What is his other book about the the various large land animals that went extinct here in North America, but that the wolf and uh, a, a lot of the other ones What is it? Serengeti. That's it. The natural west also. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's fantastic. And essentially, they all went extinct. All the horses went extinct here. And then they were reintroduced by Europeans. But they had originally evolved here in North America. I didn't know So there's no – but there's no evidence that any of the native people here – really used them until Europeans came, whether it was Cortez or whoever, you know, Cortez with the Aztecs or whoever else came across.
1: Horses. A horse is so much a part of story. Yeah. Um, the story. you know, but, So they, they come over with the Spanish. The Spanish are acutely aware of what is going to happen if the horse technology gets out. And they take great pains to not let it get out. They don't want to teach the Indians in Mexico or the Indians in North America um, how to use them. But inevitably, the technology does get out. And then there's a few moments. There's a great... Moment in time in 1680 in Santa Fe when there's a great Pueblo revolt and they kick the Spanish out and like tens of thousands of horses get out. It's the great horse dispersal. And, and, and these are the horses that come into the hands of the, these plains
0: tribes. Um, so it was in the 1600s that their power and their dominance started to assert itself? Begins. So how yes. did the Comanches figure out how to have all these horses and how how valuable that was, where some of the other tribes just hadn't kind of caught on?
1: No one knows, and, and it's, it's interesting, no one knows that because it was only seen in flashes by the Spanish through their kind of northern outposts. No one exactly knows what it was, you know, in the heart and soul of a Comanche that could do that better than anybody else. And in fact, Comanches, by by all descriptions of the time, were not, pre-horse anyway, graceful people. They were kind of short and kind of, you know, um, bow-legged, and they they weren't especially graceful and, and... they didn't They didn 't look like perhaps you would have think of the, uh, the the northern Sioux Indians of the the nickel I mean that kind of tall and you know with the bone structure that wasn 't the Comanches and then they got on a horse and then everything changed and um and and even though the Apaches were the first ones to actually get that technology from the Spanish and they crazed they raised havoc with it, but the tribe that got it the best and the most um were the Comanches. They were the tribe that actually ended up supplying horses to a lot of the Northern Plains tribes that we just talked about. Um, And what they did with once they had this incredible mastery of the horse and this ability to hunt like they never had and fight like they never had, they did what you would, I guess, expect the great new power in the Plains. The Plains are a big place by the way. I mean, the great new power in the Plains is going to challenge for the greatest food source out in mid-America, and that was the buffalo herds. And they were in the southern plains. So the Comanches, over a period of 150 years of sustained combat, moved south from the Wind River mountains of Wyoming, essentially into this 250,000 square mile empire. Think of kind of headquartered in the Texas panhandle,
0: um, which is where the buffalo were. And this tribe, they they were known for being buffalo hunters, and they were also known—they weren't really, like, making artwork or doing a lot of the things that we sort of associate with other Native American tribes. They were— Mostly just hunting they, and right. raiding.
1: And, and things that we all would associate with Native Americans, you know, this uh, wonderful abilities in dance and music, um, complex religion um, and complex religious social structures to go along with it. And all these different things, music and dance and all these things. The Comanches, by the time that the kind of Anglo-Europeans run into them, they are a stripped down culture that looks more like Sparta. And one of the reasons they are is because they've been fighting this long war – Primarily against the Apaches, but against other tribes over decades, and during that time, as they became ascendant militarily, they became less interested in those things. They became interested in war conveyed status, right? War conveyed numbers of ponies and status and the thing. And so, yes, they were a, they were a stripped down war culture. I guess to to whatever extent we we know or something about Sparta would remind you of Sparta.
0: That's what's so interesting about it is it's such a unique tribe, just a a very unique branch of Native Americans that was specifically like this.
1: They they made war and they they conquered. And when you you think about what they got themselves finally, it's about, I said, 250,000 square miles. This probably doesn't mean anything, but think of... West Texas, Western Oklahoma, Western Kansas, Eastern Colorado, and eastern New Mexico, gigantic chunks of that. That was theirs. And and when you think also of the numbers of them that were there when, when say, the Anglo Europeans and the Americans came through in the eighteen thirties, there was probably twenty five or thirty thousand of them out there, of which five or six thousand warriors. Now, I don't know what five or 6,000 suggests to you, but it suggests to me like the third baseline at Yankee Stadium or something. It's not very many people, mm. you know, occupying this gigantic area um, that that became, as we were, I was saying earlier, determinant of everything that happened around it.
0: Well, your depictions of how the raid happened where Cynthia Ann Parker got kidnapped and how all these other various raids happened... Was so terrifying because these people, the initial ones, really kind of had no idea what they were in for.
1: You, these are the Parkers. Yeah. Yes. So, so the the core. So, as I say, the, my book's about the um, you know the rise and fall of the Comanches as a tribe, which we've been talking about. But then there's this little family, the Parkers, and the Parkers did what so many other Texans did, and and this was the crazy Americans who who moved across their frontiers in ways that just were. They were beyond brave and too foolhardy. I mean, people, if you look at, say, what, what happened in Canada or what the Spanish did, there was always the, you know, the, the soldiers would ride in first and set up the presidio and then the, then the priests would come in and, you know, the, the mission would be set up and then the protections would be in place and the institutions and then the people would come. In Texas, it was just these rednecks from Tennessee and Alabama coming through with no protection of any kind. Um, you know, no. There were there were no institutions. They were out beyond any form of security or protection or institutions. And so this is what the Parkers were in 1830s. They were about 90 miles south of Dallas, and you had sp- Spanish in New Mexico, but but nothing but Comanches and Apaches between where these people were and and that. So you know, 800 miles of nothing, and. And so what they had done is they, they had taken these head rights or grants from Mexico, which, was, which owned Texas at that point. They'd been given about you know like 20,000 acres worth, which is a kingdom from their point of view. And the Mexicans were giving them this so that they could provide a buffer against the Comanches, basically providing fresh meat for the Comanches. Jesus. <laughs> and so they built this little fort out there, out right at the – and, and it, was a, it was so cool – it was not only out in the middle of nowhere, the absolute edge of the frontier, of the Indian frontier, where it, where it was in great danger. It was also right at a part where the rainfall drops you know, below 30 inches, where we go from the, around the 98th meridian, where we go from what we think of as the east to the west, where there's no trees, Right, which it happens mm. right there too. It also happens right that this, this raid in 1830 that started this out where the little blonde girl is taken. It, this also happens at a, a time when, when this gigantic Com- Comanche empire with 20 vassal states and you know, diplomatic relations touches this westward booming American empire. All these guys in Washington wearing suits and running around. Right? That empire is – and they're touching right at this point. And neither has any idea what the other one is. The Comanches have no idea that these Parker family is sitting there attached in some way to cities in the east and the burgeoning Industrial Revolution. They would not know what that was. By the same token, the, the Americans coming west had absolutely no clue that they just hit. They just did what they shouldn't have done, which was to push into Comanche territory.
0: It's so crazy that they set them up like that. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's so dark. I mean, but it's, yeah. what a, it's just such a wild time, too. I mean, but also so recent. I mean, I'm 52, so we're talking about three of my lifetimes. Three of my lifetimes ago, it was on like Donkey Kong down there. Just uh-huh. crazy. I mean, it's it's hard to believe that that recently some unbelievably horrific, barbaric, hand-to-hand combat, killing people and slaughtering entire villages and all the stuff that went back and forth between the Native Americans and between the white settlers. I mean, it was just – it's unbelievable. It's one of the most – what you just said is one of the most striking things
1: about this to me and was when I – the you know, the the Connecticut kid came to Texas was that where I grew up, you know, Indians had been – well, when I say subdued, usually killed off by white man's diseases, but if not by you know, bullets or treaties or something, I mean, a couple of hundred years before my forebears ever got off the boat, there wasn't a frontier in memory anyway. I mean, there were Indian tribes around and I played baseball with some of them in the summers and so forth. I knew of them, but this was a really distant memory. Okay. Get to Texas. 1875 is when the last of the Comanches came in and there was a whole bunch of jostling on and off the res after that into the 20th century. Yeah. 140 plus years ago. Not that much. Yeah. So we're talking within a really close generational memory. And and that's what's really stunning. And if you talk to – I don't know. Where are you from originally, Joe? Boston. So Boston – okay. You and I – okay. Boston. I was born in Jersey, but did most of my growing Most up of Boston. my family came from Boston, and so the the difference between that and and what if you go to Texas, uh, there's a, there's an area west of Fort Worth, kind of Weatherford, Palo. Pinto County, Parker County, now where you can talk to people, and they're still talking about Comanches. I mean, really, it's it's their great grandfather was killed by them. Wow! So that's
0: Texas, and that's why it's so. I found it so striking, so really striking. It's also striking because you realize over the course of the book, and I mean, just and then more books that I've gotten into subsequently, that this was something that was going on before the white settlers even got there. That this way of life and the, the raiding and the, the killing, and that's not what we associate Native Americans with. We associate with us with taking the Native Americans' land and then them fighting back, and that's when things get ugly but it turns out this was just a wild way of life that they had had for who knows how many years
1: one of the things that surprised people when i wrote this book and i didn't know that i was going to be surprising people because i was just reporting what i found was 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 that that very thing that that this was I think people are are often used to the bury my heart at wounded knee" narrative of of Native Americans, which is as victims. And there's no question that they were victims of a westward-rolling empire and 378 broken treaties, and we can just go on and we know what that narrative is like. But the narrative that I told was a narrative of power, of dominance, of power, uh, which came with brutality too, and I think it surprised – it was a fact – it was a fact that, that if you go back in time, these, Indi- these Native American tribes, that eventually got crushed, as the Comanches did, and put on a reservation somewhere and had their livelihood taken away from them. Um, but, you know, it, it really – anyway, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a huge deal um, and, and a narrative that I, I think to me that doesn't take into account the enormous power and dominance and behavior of of Comanches is just missing
0: you know half the half the narrative well it 's so fascinating because it 's essentially they were living like stone Age people and they were doing it very recently they were They were doing it like in in terms of the way Europe is. you could go and see buildings in Italy that were built long before any of this stuff happened, long before the settlers started encountering them. And they were living like this in this sort of – I mean, it's very romantic. The, the the way they lived, just chasing the buffalo yeah, and, and and killing them and then eating only buffalo meat and then doing very little farming, picking some berries and nuts, and that's about it. I mean, it was just eating meat and raiding and killing. It, so, they were They were – Hunter gatherers, yeah. they
1: were nomadic hunter gatherers,
0: yeah,
1: which is what they were and and what the horse allowed them to do was to which is what they had been before, the horse allowed them to do that only just really, really, really well, in other words they they weren't in a position of becoming agricultural Indians. the horse gave them this ability to, and as you said the, the they got everything from the buffalo clothing and and lodging and and tools and saddles and bridles and food i mean everything came from the buffalo so the horse just enabled them to do this on an incredibly sophisticated level
0: it's the most sad part of the story is the extirpating of the buffalo i mean that's uh, not the most sad but one of the that their yeah. way of life it's almost like you know what happened but i'm rooting for them in some weird way yeah. you know i mean i know that they're not going to win but there's something about the way they lived It seems so exciting. And the other thing was the way you described Cynthia Ann Parker post being, air quote, rescued. Like how badly she wanted to go back to the Comanche and how she missed the way they looked at the world. That the world was, in in many ways, there was so much magic involved in the way the Comanche viewed the sky and the ground, and that there was gods that were looking out for them, and that they could literally have magic going into battle. Like, all this, the the romance of this nomadic lifestyle was, that's what she wanted. And, like, when you talked about that one guy that spoke Comanche, and that she she meets him, and she's like, please take me, take take me me with you. Yeah. it's crazy.
1: It it was um, so she was she was taken about the age of I guess it was nine, and then she was he, with the Comanches for twenty four years. She completely assimilated. She married a war chief. She had three children. She they tried you know at two different times they knew where she was. Indian agents figured out where she was, and they they, they made a push to get her back because the idea generally was to get captives back. She wouldn't go, um, and then suddenly in a raid. Uh, Purely by accident, she's captured in 1860 and is dragged back. And she has to
0: show that she's white so that they don't kill her, right? Right.
1: She has to show that she, well, she's a, a woman and, and white so that they don't kill her. She, she, she barely escapes from that. Um, but she ends up being you know, forcibly reassimilated. So here's someone who completely assimilated once. Um, with great success. And then in in her 30s now, she's taken back into this white culture. And in fact, they put her up on a, they were so astounded to see her because she was, Indians weren't the cleanest people in the world. I mean, her, her job was to kind of, you know, tan buffalo hide. So she, her kind of greasy looking and, um, you know, didn't look like a white farm, you know, white, um, God-fearing farm woman from, from Dallas, but they put her up on a, uh, you know, on a, on a, pedestal with her daughter and they kind of looked at her and stared at her as this kind of, um, this, this strange object, the white squaw who wouldn't return this kind of object of curiosity. And then she gets kind of shuffled, um, ever deeper into the East Texas piney woods and ever farther away from her, um, uh, her people uh, and she never assimilated it was interesting she was she having assimilated once brilliantly, she was asked in effect to do it again and, and she couldn 't and she never did but going back for just one moment to something you said was this idea of this kind of freedom and magic there was in Comanche and it was it was all there it was this it was this world that was suffused with magic everywhere you looked there was magic in everything um and but one of the things that also was and this was this was relayed by actually male uh, captives of the Comanches. Now the Comanches had a very flat hierarchical organization or a very flat hierarchy. There was like, it may be a war chief and a civil chief, but there was really no, there were no priest clans and hierarchies. There was, it was just flat. And if you were a Tawana Parker, or a young warrior and, and you wanted to get together a, a raid on the Utes, you could just do it. It was just, you could do what you wanted to do. And so, you look at these what this one particular captive was talking about this, and he was talking about being fifteen years old. This was before the Comanche men had to fight and really hunt they could they could do some hunting, and but they they weren't yet in the full responsibility of men there they are sitting there they 've got no responsibilities except to go hunt and have fun and go swimming and learn how to become the greatest riders in the world they've got no institution around them of any kind they've got and you start to think of why do people go west you know away from institutions yeah. away from things that were going to make them less free and so you, I, I looked at it and I describe it this way uh, a 15 year old Comanche boy may have been like the freest thing that ever existed in, in America and I, I can feel the pull you know
0: yeah I, mean, I think we all can I mean when we were kids growing up you know you didn't we played cowboys and indians you know (laughs) exactly and a lot of people (coughs) wanted to be indians you know you wanted to wear those kind of native american jackets with the frill and there was so so much of that that was attractive to us and that was a big part of it was that they were free you know dances with wolves obviously you know when kevin costner gets assimilated into that tribe there's something exciting about it like it's more noble, it's sought to be like a, a more powerful alternative to this western grind and and
1: and again you're just you're out there and 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 you are beyond the reach of any of the normal institutions that we think about school and work and job yeah. and government and religion and church and all the things that bind people in and most people are happy to be bound by them but but many people aren't and I thought that this there was an idea of the West. Um, of kind of limitless freedom, this West of, that predates barbed wire and private property, and yeah. and that just seemed—I don't know—I still find it just one of the most appealing things to think about.
0: Very, and just the fact that it's so recent—that's what's really crazy. Really, when you're recent. talking about the, the urban sprawl and barbed wire and things along those lines. I mean, and it's particularly in Texas where everything's almost private property. I mean, just giant ranches everywhere, and. This was all run by the Comanche.
1: Ninety-eight percent of Texas is uh, unlike if you go one one state to the west and you, you're at the, you're in the big land pu- public land government land states. Texas is ninety-eight percent private now.
0: That's a weird thing, isn't it?
1: It is. It's very strange. How'd that happen? Well, it 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 happened because that's the way it settled. Um, and and uh, the the public land states just there was just, for one thing there was a lot more. Of apparently a sort of useless land in in the in the western states, but anyway, it, it it happened, and in Texas, you're lucky to get yourself a state park here and there.
0: When you were doing research for this, did you meet with any current Comanches?
1: I met with some of them, and I know some of them. Um, some of them are on my on my website. Um, but as far as interviewing them for things that happened two or three hundred years ago, that's not really a, a that's sort of a non-starter as a historian, although although the book itself is based on lots and lots of interviews with Comanches, but of the era, people who, this is, this was the great, there was some great projects done in the 20s and 30s with C- Comanches who talked about, you know, who had memories of the 19th century. Mm. Um, and so a lot of what we know that's in my book that we know about the Comanches and who they are come from all of these interviews. And there's a lot in my book that comes from Comanches, but again, of the era. So, you know, I, I, I just figured that, interviewing people today about things that happened a long time ago was probably not that efficient.
0: No, for sure. Not that efficient, but still to me, it would be kind of fascinating to see where they are now. I mean, the, the the native American reservations in this country have traditionally been pretty horrific and it's very depressing and sad. And for the people that live there, just so, so little hope and so little opportunity. And it's, it's as you were talking about before, the broken treaties and just, to see them having gone from being this incredible warlike tribe to being resigned to these very small patches of land that are usually not very fruitful and not very resource f- filled
1: and that happened to a lot of tribes. I mean if you look at the Comanches uh the Comanches are, are a pretty small tribe they're they they um they're located in their center, although there's no reservations in, a, in there's no <coughs> <coughs> excuse me <coughs> you all right. Yeah, they don't have a tail end of the flu. Uh they don't have a reservation there, but they they're I'd say uh, the last number I heard was 14,000 or something like that. One of the big um I guess ironically in some ways determinant factors in how uh, wealthy a tribe is now is proximity to a major urban area. For example, Chickasaws and Choctaws are in range of DFW, so their casinos there yeah. make a lot of money. The Seminoles in Florida, There are some tribes in California who are making a lot of money. If you go yeah. up to, say, um, some of the Sioux reservations, you know, well up north on the plains, they're not near, they just, they're, they're, the lands, their traditional lands, just don't happen to be close to... Urban centers. Yeah, urban centers. And so there's a little bit of that going on um, um, there, but... uh yeah, that's they. This is just, you know, where where we, the U.S. government, put the Indians, and um, and in terms of Plains Indians and Comanches and Arapahos and Cheyennes and Sioux and everybody else, they never wanted to be farmers. They farming was exactly what they never wanted to do, and even if you gave them one hundred and sixty acres, they would they would sublet it. They would uh, rent it out to to usually a white farmer who would farm it, and they would take a sharecropping uh, percentage or something, but. Um, uh, yes, yeah, so they, they didn't want anything to do with that, um, and and above all, they didn't want to be forced into a type of life that they that that they had never done before, and considered it just kind of unseemly.
0: So, do Comanches have a reservation today? No, no reservation at no. all. Well, the the, the the problem is the way
1: this is going to get into a lot of detail, but I mean Oklahoma, they basically they, they in favor of in place of reservations, they gave out individual apportionments of land.
0: Mm. Um, and had them assimilated. Yeah,
1: so where I – for example, where I came from in the East Coast, there are reservations. If you go to, say, um, Colorado, uh, you'll go to you – see the Ute Reservation or some of the Sioux Reservations. There's reservations all over the place, not in Oklahoma.
0: Wow. So they're in danger of having their culture probably get erased. They're pretty – I mean, I think they would – they would
1: tell you. I mean, I don't want to speak for Comanches or anybody else, but that they're that they're you know they're they're pretty strongly organized where they are. They they have a nation. They do have a nation. It's just they don't have a a, a body of a reservation, but they do have a nation.
0: But if they have a nation, they don't have the same sort of laws that ones have a no, reservation. No, they actually do. They so do? if you
1: go for example, I spent some time with the uh, Chickasaw's a few years ago. It's incredible. Now they don't have a quote reservation either, but they have they have little pieces of, of land that is theirs. But they also have a completely parallel police system, completely parallel legislature. They have parallel health care systems. And oh, you know. can and you can drive through these parts of Oklahoma where I don't say Choctaws or, or or, or or Cherokees or whoever they may be are and there are these whole parallel worlds that are existing right in front of you and you don't see them wow they're, yes so, so no I, actually I think they're uh, in a lot of ways uh, a lot of the tribes in Oklahoma are doing well um, but it, you I mean you literally can drive through it and you, you wouldn't be able to tell
0: it's just such a stunning amount of change that happened to this continent over a short relatively short period of time yeah
1: I mean, really astounding, and and if you look at what from from the moment that the last Comanche is surrendered with Kwan, when Quanah and the the last of the starving have all the buffalo have been killed now, and so they're they're coming in, and it's 1875, you know, that very year, their old kind of main. I guess camping ground would be Paladuro Canyon, one of the biggest canyons in the American West, up in the Texas Panhandle, and that's kind of where their their sanctuary was, or one of their big sanctuaries were. Within that very year, white men already owned Paladuro Canyon. There was already a ranch on it. Um, it was already private property. Within a few years, there's barbed wire going all the way up. I mean, it, this is happening. I mean, so in other words, you have. You have the transfer of ownership. Suddenly white people own the land that the Indians just used, to, that used to be theirs, right? The second thing that happens is now we have the cattle drives just before barbed wire. And then there's only a few years of cattle drives. And then the barbed wire goes up. And this happens with just breathtaking speed. And I mean from really the moment that they started killing the buffalo off in the, what, 1870 or something? 1871 to, I mean, full barbed wire. It's just – it's less than a couple decades.
0: It's such a great story. And the 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 fact that this young girl Cynthia Ann Parker gets kidnapped and gives birth to this man who eventually becomes the last great Comanche chief and literally watches the entire empire change and shift into this what we now call Western world. Yep he 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 rides in Teddy Roosevelt's inaugural parade. <laughs> <laughs> so
1: we're talking. Well, that was
0: also what's crazy about the book, like that he meets Teddy and he has a speech with him on stage. Yeah. And this is all. I mean, he had killed a, a lot of white people too, right? A lot of he, settlers. He
1: he, he he didn't talk about it, but yes, he had. because
0: that's what Comanches did. Yeah, well, so wise of him also to not talk about.
1: it. Right, and not only Comanches. He was he he fought Indians. He fought anybody who yes. was out there. But yes, he he didn't he didn't spend
0: a, t- a lot of time bragging about that. Yeah, I mean, I guess it's just the way they felt about war. What is this, Jamie? Uh, the parade. Oh, there's, here's the parade. There's an I don't image know which one he is, but there's six of them in the parade. Wow! Yeah. And what year is this? Over 19... 1908, or, somewhere Oh, eight. I think. Oh, eight. So yeah. what yeah. a insane relationship that must have been for those people to be experiencing. First of all, these enormous cities, and going through Washington D.C. on horseback, and yeah. knowing what you had come from, and what a catastrophic titanic change had taken place inside of your lifetime, and now you're experiencing something that you didn 't even think was possible yeah. and it's the the new law of the land is that and, Quanta and Quanta there? was
1: I, it does look like Quanta, doesn't it in the middle no. um but i mean he, and he was you know he was not just ceremonial indian i mean he 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 was a brilliant man uh, and he one of the things he did is he went to New york i mean went to Washington and he testified, and there were all these there were all these hearings um trying to figure out how much land indians were going to get um and Quan, of course, testified this and actually is quite brilliant i put his testimony in my book he, he's just flat brilliant he, he he sort of runs circles around the senator who's questioning him so but he would so he played an active role too but there he is as you say he's sitting in a, a committee room in congress i mean this guy who was this great free warrior on the plains now how long did it take you to research this I, You know, I did this partly while I was at a day gig, so I'm not really sure. Probably three or four years, something like that. Um, there isn't as much as you would think in, because and, – and the reason is – I mean, there's a fair amount and it's all in Texas, which is good. Um, but there's uh, one curious thing about um, – writing about native americans is that they don't they didn't write anything down so so if you're writing about say winston churchill i mean you can track him from like his bath in the morning to his seventh note to Asquith and his note to Asquith to to his notes to his wife to all of his proceedings in parliament and everything he ever did it's like moment by moment you take someone like out on the plains and you've got pretty much nothing and so what you have what you do have are You know, flashes that are seen by, say, the the Spanish originally or the French or Mexicans or Texans and Americans as they come through. You're you're seeing them in flashes um, as they're presented to you because there are no parish records. There's no legal records. There's no interviews. There's no things like that.
0: That's so stunning. It's It's so stunning. But that's one of the weirdest things about where they are today in 2019, this idea that they don't have – Really, uh, a, a, a reservation or specific giant chunk of land that's theirs so that they can right. sort of preserve at least some of this history.
1: Yeah, no, it's um, it, it was a peculiarity of Oklahoma that 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 it that it went that way because there are other states as as we talked about earlier who have who do have large uh, large reservations to this day. But um, yeah, so it's it's so and when you get if you're writing about them when you get to um. Sort of the the, the post reservation period. So let's say into the eighteen eighties, eighteen nineties, the the world does change in terms of you know things are being written down. Quana you know Quana becomes a big part of his society. He's settling up cattle leasing deals. He's founding a school board. I mean he he does all these things that you know that you wouldn't necessarily think a glorious chief of the Comanches would do, but he does those things and, and those are very trackable. I mean you know exactly what he's doing and and you can research them and. In
0: conventional ways, I was fascinated by the peyote rituals too. Now, was that a natural, normal part of Comanche life, or is this something that he adopted from other tribes?
1: He he adapted it from something that had gone on on the border, on the Mexican border. But it be, he became the founder of the Native American Church, which had a peyote ritual in which he and it became famous for. Um, and so there was a, if, there was this great a, a place I would really like to go back to in American history would be to Quanah's. Uh, house. Koana got his cattleman buddies to build him. First of all, he wanted the U.S. government to build him a house because Kwana was a hustler and he said, could I please have a house? They said, no, you can't have a house. So he went to his uh, cattleman buddies and they, they built him this house, magnificent house. It was like 4,500 square feet double porch with these giant white stars in the roof it became known as is that his
0: house right there
1: that's star house it's fallen down but there, now but yes in, in its heyday it looked really so that spooky. still
0: exists to this day
1: it does and it's about to fall down and they've who now who owns it uh, well this uh, a guy who lives in uh, Cash or Lawton Oklahoma and who doesn't who has been unwilling to accept help or money from everybody from the Comanche Nation to That's it right there. Th- 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 it always th- had the
0: stars on their Yeah, right yeah, tonight?
1: it did because he he saw that US generals had these stars on their collars <laughs> and he wanted he wanted <laughs> like more than they had. Wow. Um, and but that's, that's that sits there in Cache Oklahoma. Um so, now I've been in it but but it's gotten so beat up now that they they don't let you go in it anymore. But oh. it sits there. So so that we have so we, as long as we have that there in, in 1895 if you went there in the let's say early 1890s, you it would have been one of the most amazing scenes. We had people like Geronimo coming to dinner. Roosevelt came to dinner. Nelson Miles the great general came to dinner. He, he had a – I think it was a Swiss-Mexican cook. He had six wives. He had, had 19 – 21 children, 19 who grew to adulthood. The house is full of kids. It would have been surrounded by lodges. And the reason it would have been that is because people – his own tribe had come in for help, you, money or pay for a funeral or or, a, or going back to the peyote, a peyote ritual, which is a healing ritual. And so you would have seen one of the great scenes in the American West. And, and people, when, when he died in 1911, people found out that he'd given most of his money away um, it, 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 to all these people who had come in asking for his help. He had, in fact, helped them and given most of his cattle ranching money away that he had made.
0: Now this house is owned by one individual. Yes, and so, but but it's a historical landmark, and no one's preserving it. They're not doing anything to. You him? know,
1: it, it, I don't know all the details of it, but it's owned by Wayne Gibson and his sister, as far as I know, still, and they've owned it for a while. They don't want any help. It was that house was put into an amusement park years ago to preserve it. That was owned by Wayne's uncle, as far as I know, and so, so it was Wayne, taken apart. It was was it taken apart? I don't know. They did move it, though. They
0: moved it. So this is not the original location where it's, it's at right now? No,
1: the original location was out on what turned out to be later to be a Fort Sill Gunnery Artillery Range. And so they they moved it. And so um, a daughter, I guess it was, moved it down into Cash. And then it was moved one more time into this amusement park, literally, uh, <laughs> that... When I went into this amusement park, it was like something out of a, I don't know, a Spielberg movie. I mean, you go, I was told the house was back there and I couldn't really believe it, but so I, we go in and you're going by these defunct old you know, roller coasters that are all overgrown with vines like Sleeping Beauty's Castle, you know, and, and there's cows everywhere and, and, and rides and carousels all, gro- all overgrown. And then you go through a series of houses that were also moved there like Frank James's house or something and keep going, keep going in the back there that thing was. The house was sitting there. Wow. Now, it is his. He owns it. He's been approached, as I said, by all sorts of different people, consortiums of people with money who want to buy it or, or just save it, you know, from literally the Comanche nation I know has wanted to and Texas Tech has and some Dallas people and any number of people. And so, to my knowledge, thus far, he refuses to sell or, or to take their help.
0: Is that him right there? Yeah, I, think, I think that is. Yeah, that's him, Wayne. Wayne, Wayne Gibson yeah, 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 yeah come that's on, him. Wayne. Hey, so he's a perfectly
1: nice guy. He, he it's, it's a, He feels the house is very special in his family, and it is indeed very special. But he won't. The last time, the last tour I got with him, as you're going up the main stairwell, there was a four foot by six inch hole in the main in, in the roof above the main stairwell. I mean, you can't really have a a, a four-foot-by-six-inch hole.
0: No. Oh, I, I, I might be yeah, it. there it um, is. Anyway, so, the rain,
1: and the rain would just
0: come through. And, um, but so, so. What can you do to preserve a house like this while still leaving it the way it is? So it's, you, you know what I'm saying? Like, you would have to replace the wood. Now, if you replace the wood, is it still the same house? Like, there's arguments about boats. Yeah. They, they've found some ancient boats, and they've done some rebuilding of these boats. Now, all of a sudden, you're looking at new wood In the shape of this old boat, like, what is it now? Is it? What is
1: it? Yeah. So I tell you, the first time I walked in there, which was 15 years ago, you wouldn't have needed to do that much work to it. 15 years ago? Yeah, you would not have needed to. You would have needed some bolstering for sure, and the foundation would have needed some work. But it has gone way downhill because nothing's been done to it. So now, (sighs) I I don't know. But when I walked in there, you, you really could have... A good carpenter and you know carpenter team and a month you could have shored that thing. Jesus up. Christ! Yeah,
0: that's so sad. Yeah,
1: and I don't know how much of it. I mean, a lot of it was the problem was with all those holes in it. Yeah, stuff had started to rot and right, rot. Of is, rot
0: is different than yeah, you know. And then you would have to actually really replace that wood. So at the, at the end of the day, it was going to be a certain percentage of it's going to be new. But at least you could sort of get a semblance of what it was and do your best to sort of, I mean, if you had like a real good architect on hand and a real good engineer and someone from some sort of historical society where they could look at it and say, okay, this is, we we, we want to maintain as much of this old stuff as possible while making sure that this thing can last for more people to see it.
1: I think they could still do that, but I, I'm, no, I'm no expert. But it's uh, it, it, there's plenty of it that you can save. And there's things like, you know, that there's that famous it's in my book it's a picture of uh the table Quana's table there and you've got the tin ceiling that's still there and the floorboards are still there and those mm-hmm. are all the same you know the same uh uh stuff so i don't know i'm no expert on it but until the owner because it's his until the owner decides to do something
0: to it come on um, bro what's his name i think it's wayne gibson wayne gibson come on wayne <laughs> it's ridiculous, Wayne. He's a lovely guy. I I'm mean, sure he's just, a lovely He, doesn't, guy. he just
1: doesn't want to do that. This Get particular shit together, thing. Wayne.
0: Yeah, it's, it's a giant part of history. I mean, and <laughs> particularly after you read this story, um, read your book. It's just so much more interesting. You know that I mean that was the end. That was when this guy had become a cattleman. That's when this guy had sort of assimilated into not not just assimilated, become incredibly successful, and in, you know. I want to say western, but Western meaning you know the united states it's not really what- we- I keep using that word probably incorrectly. What is the word to use when he is assimilated eastern um, what, what settler culture like what what would you say when they assimilate into the white man's world uh would you just say that? The white man's world? I suppose. I guess the white man's world is probably the yeah. best way.
1: Anglo-European culture right. that had come west. Um, but, yeah, very much the white man's world. The fact and,
0: that he become a cattleman and become incredibly yeah. successful. And I thought it was hilarious, too, that they wanted him to not have so many wives.
1: They didn't, him the wives, <laughs> so they didn't want to have him, the wives, they didn't want to have you know the braids, the long long yeah. braids and no, I didn't didn't like that, didn't like the wives. Um he Quanta things his own way. He also played politics brilliantly. I mean, he understood from the early going that that quote the chief of the Comanches was going to be appointed by the commander at Fort Sill. Mm. You know, it wasn't just going to happen and there were all sorts of candidates jostling for this and he made sure that it was him. That didn't make him any less the leader of his uh, tribe. It didn't make him any less of an independent person who the white men had to deal with, but he made sure he had that one um, buttoned up. And he was challenged continuously. I mean, there, was, there were continuous challenge to him.
0: Uh, it's interesting historically that you don't hear about him and the Comanches when they played such a significant part in – taking over the West and settling the West, when you hear about Crazy Horse, you hear about Sitting Bull, you hear about right. the, the Sioux and the Apaches, you don't hear that much about the Comanches. And you don't hear no. much about Quanah Parker.
1: No. It was one of the great pleasures of writing this book is that, that it, these were largely unknown things. I mean, if you Quana was one of them, there, uh, another Another discovery was, you know, every we all know about certain people running around San Antonio in the 1830s. J, Davy Crockett would come to mind. But we don't know about Jack Hayes, the world's greatest, you know, the Ranger, the, the guy who sort of in, invented yeah. this anti-Comanche warfare, invented the repeating – you know, he, he, he first – he didn't invent, but he first used the repeating five-shot pistol and then, the, of course, had a hand in the invention of the six-shooter. But um, you, everybody should know who Jack Hayes is. Everybody should know. I mean – Quana was—I mean, Geronimo is Geronimo—and he's famous largely for one particular particular breakout in the late nineteenth century. But you know, Quana was arguably the greater man in in the reservation period. And um, I mean, Geronimo, in some ways, was kind of a
0: was kind of a curmudgeon. <laughs> yeah, that was another part that I wanted to get to was Jack Hayes and the creation of the Texas Rangers. So we we think of the Texas Rangers today. We think of like Chuck Norris. Yeah, you know, you, know, you really don't realize that they were essentially a, a group that was created to effectively combat the Comanche. Exactly, that's and where they came from. It's amazing the story when you when you talk about how it took like s- sort of several iterations. Of these guys, before they figured out how to do it right, and the the guys that came out, they're they're essentially a lot like like a lot of depictions of Navy SEALs, like renegades, yeah. like wild, rugged rebels. And there they are. There's the original Texas Rangers. Is that Jack Hayes in there? I don't, I don't name, see is him. San T- Antonio's yeah. military.
1: There he is. There's Jack Hayes's. Uh, uh, well, the, the the lightest picture. That's him. That's there's him right Hayes. there. Huh. Yeah. Wow. So hey. So so the thing was of okay. San Antonio in the 1830s, late 1830s. You have you have about 2,000 residents. It's the kind of the out the final outpost on the frontier, and what what's happening is um, Texas, which now owns the Texas, which now owns Texas, having won its independence, is giving out what they call head rights. So if you want to get a head right, meaning free land, so all you had to do to get your free land outside of San Antonio was mm-hmm. go. Uh, survey the land. That's all you had to do, and you had it, you know. Whoa. And so, the surveyors would go out and survey it, and the Comanches would kill them in ever more imaginative ways, because the Comanches understood exactly that the instruments did steal the land. The instruments were the mechanism of the theft of the land mm. from them. And so, part of the deal was to keep. How can you keep your, the surveyors alive? And Hayes was originally a surveyor, but he eventually just got good at keeping other surveyors alive. And these guys who could do that eventually became known as rangers. And they evolved as Comanche fighters, you know, fighting like Comanches did. I mean, they learned bird signs to track people. They would, you know, make cold camps. I mean, you never made a warm – you never made a campfire if you were around Comanches. I mean, they would they – would, they learned these, these techniques and techniques of warfare. Um, and they got really good at it. Um they just had this one problem and the problem was that they had three shots. They had Kentucky long rifle bang uh a uh, and two single shot pistols. And that's all they had against Comanches who um I would encourage uh, all, all of your listeners to go um and uh and look up this guy Lars Anderson on the internet. Yeah. He's the he's the bow guy. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so I've what, seen him before. What he, what he proved, among other things... I mean, he went back and he just researched it. And, and a lot of the things that I frankly found hard to believe about Comanches, once I saw the Anderson videos, you believe them. Yes. Anderson can... I think it's... Uh, Ten arrows in five seconds. Um, he, there's no such thing as a quiver. You're holding it as a bunch in your arm. You, I mean, but all these things that we, you know, we heard that the Comanches could do underneath the horse's neck and rapidity of fire and and, you, and no one's ever Comanches never stood in one place and closed one eye and shot. They never once did that. They were moving both eyes open. Anyway, look at the Anderson video. It's really cool. But what that meant was that Jack Hayes and the Rangers were at an enormous disadvantage. You know, and then. Lo and behold, he – well, cut to the East Coast. This inventor named Samuel Colt had come up in the, in the early 1830s with a prototype of a – it was, a, it was a, a, a really ingenious little pistol. It was a five-shot pistol made in – well, eventually made in Patterson, New Jersey.
0: There it is right there.
1: Yeah. Is that the Patterson Colt?
0: I hope so. It's just a five-shot chamber that was popping up with the same guy so yeah it
1: doesn't look like the Patterson Colt. but anyway okay. it's, it's a five-shot it's paddle. a five-shot thing yeah. with with uh, revolving cylinders and it was a great idea right absolutely nobody wanted it I mean it was a, it was like a sidearm for cavalry but the U.S. didn't have a cavalry so it mm-hmm. didn't really work out for some reason, Mirabeau Lamar, the president of Texas, ordered 180 of these things, and they, came, they found their way to Texas, the five-shot Patterson Colts. And somehow Jack Hayes and his guys found out about them. And they got a hold of them. They trained with them, and they immediately understood what it meant. It meant equalizing the warfare against the Comanches. It meant Because now they, they had, they had a five shots, one interchangeable cylinder, now ten, ten shots in each pistol now. So in close hand combat, the world changed. And, and not only did that world change, but um, eventually everybody was so stunned by, what, by this development that um, the U.S. government ordered a lot of what ended up being walker Colt's six-shooters for the Mexican War. Colt becomes one of the richest men in America, and basically Jack Hayes and Rangers redefine warfare, which is which is, and people said this about Jack Hayes, and it, it's broadly speaking true. Before Jack Hayes, you know, people came into the West on foot carrying a Kentucky long rifle, and after Jack Hayes, they came mounted and carrying a six shooter.
0: Yeah, that was the other thing that was really shocking was that the u s soldiers would try to get off their horse to to engage.
1: Right. Right, because they didn't think you fought mounted. The, the the only people who fought mounted were the Plains Indians. I mean, you know, nobody thought you
0: m- fighting so mounted crazy. was
1: not something anybody did. If you if you used a horse, you used it in the dragoon way, which is you would ride to where you were going to fight, get off the horse and then fight. But Comanches were fully mounted and Rangers were fully mounted. And what they, what they used the Texas Rangers for in the Mexican War, which is um, they were, there were these terrible guerrilla problems and these Rangers just went and cleared out these whole areas and nobody had seen this type of warfare before. Nobody had seen this kind of ability to fight and move and move mounted and move with these. Well, and nobody had ever seen these these Walker Colts, these five-pound hand cannon, six-shooters that they had. Nobody had seen those either. And so these crazy, these, these rangers that dressed any way they wanted to, you know, sometimes with no shirts on and serapes and crazy hats. I mean, they were just the rangers. They were, everybody was scared to death of them.
0: Do we know the history of the bow and arrow amongst the Native Americans? Do we know when it was first implemented?
1: I'm not an expert on it. Um, I mean, I... I don't know.
0: Because I don't know if other if the way the Lars Anderson style of shooting, of keeping all the the arrows in the fingers that he researched, did he research that from Native Americans or was that ever utilized in Europe or anywhere else?
1: His research is, I think he started, and I'm not an expert on him either, but I think he started with other, I mean, he started reading about, uh, you know, anybody who were you know, who were archers and famous for it and Mm -hmm. descriptions of them. And I believe, I'm sure that that did include Native Americans, but it was, no, it was a whole, he he looked at the whole world.
0: And so do you think Native American, well, we don't know, but I'm just speculating. Did Native Americans develop this ability independently or did they, did they learn it from anyone else? Like, it seems interesting that they were living, particularly the Comanches, this incredible nomadic life. And didn't really have a lot of interaction with other people from other places
1: the for the first interaction from from anywhere else is sixteenth century spain And yeah yeah and there's there's no that that's the that's the first interaction with europeans so um the question is did the bow come over on the land bridge did right. it i mean i i don't know the, i really not my field but
0: No, of course. It's just, uh, it's so interesting because I don't know if that style of multiple shooting, of being able to shoot so many arrows in a row, had been, I don't think it was implemented by the Europeans. Maybe the Mongols, did they have? I don't
1: know. The the question, though, the more, the, the question you're getting at is how did the Comanches in particular, because when, when these Dodge and Catlin and these various people saw Comanches in Texas in 1830s, they just flat couldn't believe what they were looking at. Mm. They they couldn't believe their abilities with horses breaking them. Yeah, I'd never seen anything like it before. I never seen anything like it. No before. No
0: saddle either, right?
1: Yeah, the yeah, yeah, they did have a saddle. Yeah, did that they? They, that was part of the Spanish technology. Very oh. very very minimal. You'll see it uh, in museums, but uh,
0: can you see they, if you can find one of those? Uh,
1: saddles? Yeah, a, a, a Spanish saddle or anyway, but uh, uh, yeah, they they had and, and but particularly the the shooting.
0: There it is right there. Wow yeah, very so. very
1: minimal see how right minimal yes mm-hmm. And one of the ways they could shoot underneath the uh, the the, uh, the neck of the horse was to hang a thong off side of one of the saddles. but um, a thong well, well a, a loop, a leather loop. A leather loop that would allow them, because otherwise they they would need to be supported as they they came down underneath. And they
0: were fairly small people, right? They were were fairly small people. So they would kind of climb off the saddle and hang on the side? Hang on the side. Full gallop. Full gallop shooting. Under the neck. Accurately.
1: Arrows that would kill a man 30 yards underneath the neck. Wow. But people – so the question there, I don't know the answer to that. And I don't know that anyone does. What the white men saw just absolutely floored them um, mm. with, with abilities with arrows, and among other things, they would you know they would make the Indi- they would ask the Indian boys to uh, they'd set up a dime in a tree or a coin, and they'd go, okay, now here you stand here and like, close your eyes and aim and hit that, and the Comanche boy would miss it by a foot. Mm. And Look at that
0: com- picture right there of them do- doing action. That's There's incredible. Underneath the, um, so they're basically using the horse as a shield.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, that's the whole idea. Wow. And, and, and if you see them from the other side, I've seen trick riders do this. You can't even see them mm. from the other side of the horse. Wow. Um, and again, this was something that, you know, trick riders after, you know, in the Wild West shows and beyond would do these sorts mm. of things. But uh, I'm sorry. So but, go back to what you're saying. So when they were standing still – like, oh, so with the Comanche boy, they asked him to like shoot that dime, and Comanche uh, boy wouldn't hit. I mean, he was he was ju- he was playing by their rules. They right. wanted him to stand and aim, and whatever. Um, and uh, again, if you see the Lars Anderson videos, there was no such thing as closing one eye. There was no such thing, almost as standing still and shooting. It was constant movement. It was yeah. it was shooting from movement wherever they were going. Mm. So they and were so, really so when a accurate kid, that way. So it was sort of like the member in Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, where they say, "Here, Sundance, try to." hit that and and, uh, you know Sundance kid shoots at it and misses it and then on his way out he moves he says you mind if I move or something or I'm better if I move it's Mm -hmm. the same deal it was all about movement and it was never about anything stationary Mm. Um, anyway so yeah all
0: that that to answer I have no idea how they (laughs) how they got good at that and I uh, that's uh, what's a real shame that they don't have a written history yeah I mean that's one of many many things. That's a real yeah. shame that they don't have a written history because it's. A, and I would have loved to have seen someone be able to do that. I mean, God, what? How incredible would it be to see what what it looked like to see them? I mean, we just we just missed the motion picture by sixty seven years. You got to think they were doing it for hundreds, <laughs> right. hundreds and hundreds of years. It's almost like. Just too magical to capture. Sorry, it's gone. Yep. Gone right before you'd invent a camera. No, nope. I mean at least we have some photos, some still photos.
1: We do, and we have. Um, and I put in pretty big chunks of text into my book of people of the time who saw them and who described it. Yeah, I mean that's all you can do. Is yeah. just this, just what they saw and how
0: astounded they were. So you must have been pretty at. excited when you saw that Lars Anderson guy. Oh yeah, because yeah. you know I. Pull that guy up, pull, show up, pull up a video of that guy so we could watch it because it is pretty amazing.
1: Uh, and because he, you know, he, I, I mean, I, I, it's not that I didn't believe what I was reading, but on some level, it's hard to believe mm-hmm. that they can do what they, the people said they could do.:
0: It's interesting because this guy gets hated on a lot in the archery community. It's very funny. Because, uh, you know, they, they say that a lot of what he's doing is tricks and a lot of what he's doing is nonsense. And, you know, it's not really true that people actually did that. And but but
1: I, watch him do it.
0: Yes, I say. Okay, it. I mean, I'm the, I mean yes. unless that's
1: a trick. It's not I mean, a trick.
0: It's not a trick. <laughs> uh, he's, uh, he's clearly doing what he's saying he's doing. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Yeah. I mean, are they tricks in terms of, like, is it something that, like, maybe wouldn't be as effective, but it's really cool to see? Yeah, for right. sure. But so what? So what? He's still right. he's showing you. Yeah, he's showing you that you can do things. I mean, but he throws a ball and then shoots, look at he shoot it with his, look at that, he yeah. shoot it in, in he, the head with his he's foot. He's also the rate of discharge,
1: which was one of the things I had trouble believing. He, when you see him shoot, he's just, it's yeah. one every half this. second.
0: Throws it, catches it, and he can shoot an arrow, like, after, right after he catches it. Look at that, how he throws something in the right. air and then shoots two shots, two he throws it in the air, and then by the time it hits the ground, he hits it twice. I mean, it's incredible. And he's really accurate with this thing.
1: He also... One of his cases is that, you know, that he, he he is always moving. It's continuous mm-hmm. movement. He never... He doesn't close one eye. He doesn't stand still. He is moving all the time.
0: Yeah. Everywhere he goes, which right. is what he
1: said was a trademark of the great... The Magyars and the great, you know, archer cultures.
0: Look at this. jumps in the air, gets off an arrow before he hits the ground. I mean, amazing. And he's even catching arrows and then shooting them back like anybody no. that says that what he's doing <laughs> is nonsense is a fool like uh look I, he's I'm plainly archer. doing it he's plainly oh, you're doing an, you are an archer yeah that's okay, why i have so an archery range back there. no okay so you get it i'm a bow hunter yeah, yeah well okay that's yeah. uh this is really impressive stuff I mean I don't shoot traditional archery I shoot a compound bow with a sight and I can line it up to the exact yardage and mm-hmm. all that stuff but but I know enough to, to know that what this guy's doing is pretty special so he's showing arrows in the quiver versus arrows in his hand how he can just grab them and pull them right and so then,
1: his, his case is that we all think that it's a quiver right yeah. he says nobody nobody who was any good ever used a quiver yeah, you can transport them in a quiver but in battle you're holding them in a bunch a clustered bunch in your hand right just, and just he's the way we're seeing it. these people
0: here. in these ancient depictions the actual drawings from you know hundreds of years ago of the way he did it holding the arrows in his draw hand and so he can do it very quickly really interesting it is it's really interesting, interesting stuff. this is probably I mean because of this one gentleman it's probably the only way we're really gonna know that this was possible because no one else is doing anything like this guy Look at this. He's doing drive-bys on the back of a bike, and he he hits. I mean, back that up again so you could see that, because that is insane. Watch how he's doing this right there. Look at this. (laughs) I mean, three times he hits, in, in a second, he hits three targets on a bike as he's riding by, which would emulate a horse, other than the difference between the elevation change. You know, you go up and down on a horse. But that was the other thing about like the the stories of the Mongols that they had developed an ability to shoot as the horse was in the air because it wouldn't like the the stomping of oh, the I horses' see. hooves would during that pause. Yes. Yeah, so as yeah. the horse was up, that's when they would release. So it would have the, the least amount of impact on their uh, their accuracy. It's pretty incredible stuff.
1: But it's one of the things that made Comanches Comanches the mastery of the horse plus that would now combine with this ability to shoot from from. A moving horse.
0: Now, did um, they have a particular prowess with archery that was, uh, was known amongst Native Americans? Was it extraordinary amongst other tribes? I don't know
1: that for a fact, but I do know the reaction of people who saw them, who had seen plenty of other Indians... Nobody had ever seen anything like it at the time. Now, was there a, a group in, uh, of Northern Plains Indians that could do? It? I don't know. But but the, the reaction was almost universal by people who had seen a lot of Indian tribes, and you know, they'd never seen that before.
0: Someone needs to make a movie. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, someone really, yeah. someone really needs to make a movie about Cynthia Ann Parker, about Quanah, about the Comanche, just about what it must have been like for these poor hapless settlers that didn't know they're being used as a meat buffer yeah. you know the, the whole story i mean well so the, you know warner brothers changes. has been working
1: on this for nine years so have I, they I, yeah I, I maybe one day we can't they came very as i understand it very
0: See, close this book came out nine years ago right so that's when warner brothers was
1: right and the first screenwriter was larry mcmurtry it was very famous you know if you had to pick a screenwriter it would be larry mcmurtry and um hollywood well you know you're in the middle of the you're in the belly of the beast here you know what it's like it, it it hollywood is just does what it does i mean there are two modes here i think in hair on fire and glacier and and i've been through <laughs> both of them over these years maybe we can get your hair on fire again uh, but well, no, we've got a great screenplay now and i did i didn't write but you know derek Cianfrance francis the director has been attached hap- to you're it you happy with it though I am extremely I didn't think it was possible to do a two hour movie about that. Yeah, I that's know, what even. I'm thinking. So what they did is they basically made it about Mackenzie and Quana. It's ah. just flat brilliant. Um so and I think as as I'm told, even though I wasn't part of it, they came pretty close last summer to doing this but the budget was too high and the budget was so high i think that they thought that the only way they could make their money back is if they had batman or wonder woman in it but that (laughs) might might wreck the uh, atmosphere
0: so (laughs) So, but yeah
1: i'd love to see it get done and it it is a it's a wonderful screenplay and we'll see
0: no listen it's more than that it's it's an amazing book and i i can't recommend it enough you know um it's just it changed the way i felt and thought about the whole uh, this whole thing of these settlers traveling across the country and encountering these native american tribes it changed my whole completely changed my whole perspective of that era in time well it's the the needle
1: sort of swings both ways on this on the question of um, on native americans and there as i said there was a there was sort of a school that was dominant um well, if you, if you actually go back, you, you have kind of a mid-century impression that, you know, sort of the Indians are all bad and the army is good, right? The cavalry's riding out, right? That kind of idea of Indians. Mm-hmm. And then you have the bury my heart at wounded knee, which is the needle swinging the other way. Then right. these, these people are victims. Trailed the tears. army is all evil, yeah. which wasn't true either. Um, and it, it kind of swings. It, it swings between one untruth to another untruth, but the actual truth is some is somewhere in the middle. Well, um, you
0: and you do a great job of depicting that. Like you talk about the horrific crimes that particular uh, uh, army people did. Do. Yes. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So there's no. In my book, I'm I'm I. I objectively speaking both sides are responsible for atrocities and um you know one of the things the rangers learned was no quarter you know no quarter isn't you know when you when you if you if you can imagine all the way into an attack on an indian village of men women and children in it and imagine what no quarter looks like it's not very pretty and that was certainly comanche way of doing things and that was the texas rangers way of doing things when fighting comanche so yeah you have you have and and any number of great massacres perpetrated against uh, uh, against well, Comanches and other Indian tribes.
0: Yeah, it's I mean, it's it's amazing. I can't recommend it enough. Um, well, thank you. Have you thought about writing any other books on Native Americans, or is there any other subjects like this that you would like to tackle? You know, I I I
1: would have probably the, this book became very successful, and then there was a wave of other books. There, there were really not very many books at all before it about this particular native culture. But then there was a big wave of them after right afterward, which inspired by the success of this book. Any good ones? Oh yeah. Yeah. What was good? Uh, Let's see. um, uh, The center of everything that is the heart of everything that is, which is a, which was a version. Well, not a version, but it was a, it was a kind of doing for the Sioux. uh, Mm. What, um, what this book did so it um, that might have been a choice of mine for example would be to go hey i'll do the sioux and northern plains indians won't mm-hmm. that be great but there were some books like that but What's the heart, the, the, heart of the heart of everything that is is a, is a very i would recommend that one um there was another book actually that came out just before mine called blood and thunder that's quite good but but uh anyway there, the, the, it 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 preempted me on some of the choices i might have made um But I'd like to return to it. I've been in the Civil War now for a few years and writing about the Civil War. I have a new book out called Hymns of the Republic about the final year of the war. I wrote a biography of Stonewall Jackson. And so I've been kind of – I took a right turn. Actually, because this book was very successful, I mean, sometimes when you're successful, a window opens and maybe it's never going to open again. And that window, in this case, was that I could maybe do what I wanted to do. And so I picked Stonewall Jackson <laughs> just because mm. I want to do Stonewall Jackson. And so that made me a right angle turn into the Civil War, um, where I've been for a while. Well, but I'd love I And mean, the answer is, I'd love to return to Native America.
0: Well, it's a whole genre of film in this country, which is so yep. interesting, right? The West, the Wild West movies. I mean, it's a gigantic genre, of course. Clint Eastwood and so many other great movies, and, yep. and even the Civil War. It's like there's so many stories, what we're trying to tell. This insane story of what this country was and what it became and how quickly it all happened. Yeah. It's so hard for us when you, you're born. Me, me, I was born on the East Coast. You, you, know, you live around cities. seems normal. And then you start hearing about the West. And then you start, like as you're growing up, you start learning about cowboys and Indians and what happened. But you get this sort of weird version of it where, I mean, in, in high school, they barely taught you anything. No, nothing comprehensive, nothing, any, no. anything remotely touching on your book. And then as I got older and I started getting in it more and more, it became this re- re- really weird puzzle to me until I read your book. And your book was, uh, I actually listened to it on audio tape, and it was w- w- one of the most um, it, 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 sort of paradigm shifting. Well, it, just, it just completely shifted my perspective on, on how it happened. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> I'm
1: glad yeah. you experienced it that way. I think people need to hear it. it was it is it is a bit of uh, I mean I think it, from my point of view it's a bit of me being too dumb or naive to know any better. I mean I just went in as a reporter and yeah. and reported uh, without any particular agenda. Not, not because I'm a noble person, but just because I just didn't have any agenda. I just reported the book, and I thought this is interesting, and this is interesting, and and just laying that out actually means you're avoiding these sort of ideological extremes that you know that of whatever it may be that that is painting a picture that isn't quite accurate for some other reason. So anyway,
0: has anybody written a good book on Crazy Horse? Um, uh,
1: not that I can. Uh, Larry McMurtry wrote a pretty good book about Crazy Horse. Uh, uh, a small
0: volume. I'm trying to remember there, there was a book a few years about crazy horse, but anyway, the McMorchery book is pretty good. Yeah. Um, so, but so basically, so you may go back to this sort of subject. I may, if, if I you could may. find,
1: if I could find, uh, you know, the right subject. Um, so Jack Hayes was something I, I could still go back. Jack Hayes was a really interesting guy.
0: Um, yeah, that well, seemed like when you were yeah. talking about it in the book, like this could be a whole another yeah. avenue I that can, you could take. I could see going back
1: to yeah. Jack Hayes because he he continues to intersect with Native America all all through his life. Um, mm. And anyway, so we'll, well just, just the
0: whole idea of going from uh, a surveyor yeah. to protecting surveyors to becoming the original Texas Ranger, which is one of the I mean Texas Rangers, one of the mo- most iconic groups yeah. of humans in the history he, of this he, country he
1: was the uber ranger he was the man he was like five foot eight five foot nine slender the high voice you
0: know <laughs> just a bad motherfucker <laughs> oh,
1: man was he bad and he had all these you know these giant rangers really mean people i mean these were the people who did not want to pick the fight within the western bar you know complete deference
0: yeah well, that was what was fascinating about it is like they had put together these sort of outcasts, and those are the ones that were yep. able to do the job. And not only able, but they, nobody else would do it. I mean, these were
1: 23-year-old guys who didn't have families and who just didn't give a shit about anything. Yeah. They were happy to be out in the field for six months without pay, which was often true. I mean, they often just didn't get paid. Um, they, they, weren't, they weren't armed. They weren't paid. They weren't. And they, they, just, and they wanted to fight Indians i mean how many <laughs> how many 41 year olds you know want to do that you know Not a lot cause. it's just
0: such a wild group of humans you know yeah i i really do hope you uh write a book about that
1: well that would be a i've, I've often thought of pursuing that one and that gets into other native american areas so
0: but. well listen man i mean just what just being able to talk about it uh on here i'm I'm hoping that it gives it a boost again well thank you, you, know.
1: you for whatever i'm so glad you like it it uh it, it it's it's a great subject and it and it it in some ways I think the reason I maybe was was mainly attracted to it is it told you what happened in the American West on some level through mm. this one lens. Yeah. Which is pretty cool.
0: You knocked it out of the park, man. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. And thanks right. for coming here. I really thanks, appreciate it. Right. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye everybody. Yeah. That was awesome.
1: Well that was painless. Thank you. Nice. <laughs>